Well, hello. Uh, welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will be uh, beginning a, a long series of short stories. We'll be reading uh, Heinlein's works uh, in the order that they were published, roughly, at least we'll go year by year. Um, and so we'll start right at the beginning. Um, and that beginning is in 1939. Now, we know he's already written For Us to Living, but he put that away and we only... Uh, learned about that novel much later and can now read it thankfully um but the first work he published was in 1939 in astounding magazine um purchased for for 70 dollars um at the time um and that was his first publication um so this story uh is really about um insurance i guess i mean i mean that's really uh the heart of it um the science fiction aspect of the story is 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 pretty you know not that amazing it's not a great uh um concept but how he applies it how heinlein applied it in the story shows a lot of thoughtfulness and it really grounds the work in 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 the world that he lived in in, in many ways so this uh so the basic idea here is a scientist, um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Pinero, learns or discovers a mechanism, a technique for a very easy technique. Anyone can go into the office and do it. It seems it's relatively cheap, but um, basically he's able to access um, time as a fourth dimension that we live in and use this device to basically tell us the exact uh, moment of our death. I think he says it's the, the, the year and, and the hour, the day and the hour that we're going to die. So he uh, figures this out. And the story begins with him presenting this to, to the academic community at like a conference. And he's, he's kind of laughed off the stage by, by the academics. And that's, that's going to be, a, I think, a theme we're going to see a lot. And Heinlein is the, is the, brilliant scientist discovering some new technology or some new device and that being rejected by conventional wisdom. Now this is this is a quote directly from our of our character Panera when the the crowds during this academic conference is is rowdy and disbelieving and, and rejecting his ideas and demanding evidence and all this and he write any response Barbarians, imbeciles, stupid dolts, you have blocked the recognition of every great discovery since time began. Such ignorant canile are, are enough to start Galileo spinning in his grave. That fat fool down there twiddling his elk's tooth calls himself a medical man. Which doctor would be a better term? That little ball-headed runt over there, you. You style yourself a philosopher and prate about life and time in your neat categories. What do you know of either one? How can you ever learn when you won't examine the truth when you have a chance bah you call this an academy of science i called it undertaker's convention interested only in involving the ideas of your red-headed predecessors end quote now this as a general statement i think there's a lot of truth to that 
Um, of course, uh, you know, we can look at like uh, the Kuhn's argument of scientific revolutions, um, you know, which is a major theory in the history of science. Of course, that's written in the 70s, so it's much after this. But um, the idea there is most scientists, most scientific work is done within a certain paradigm. It's done within a certain framework of rules and assumptions and ideas. And philosophy is the same. Philosophy is mentioned here, and we'll say philosophy is is the same way right like if you look i've been doing a lot on the history of philosophy listening to that wonderful podcast the history of philosophy podcast and you know there's always innovation and new ideas in philosophy but it's always grounded in certain ideas and texts and and commentary on texts and so that there's a lot that can be done within that i mean i think one thing you learn from that podcast is just how much diversity there can be in just something as simple as like commentaries on aristotle nevertheless i mean from a broad perspective it's it's true that new ideas are often approached with skepticism and they have to be like this you know it takes a while for those ideas to seep in and that's the scientific revolution that's when a new paradigm is formed but the downside of this i mean that's basically a good story right people come up with new ideas and eventually those ideas might take over thrust a new paradigm scientists and thinkers will work within that paradigm uh, for a while uh, until a new paradigm is reached. But the bad news is that people are trained within that paradigm and they're stuck in it and their conclusions often rest within that within that individual paradigm. So th this is an attack. Hume's idea is, is attacking the idea that science sort of is a slow progression or a slow progress and not uh, a kind of a, a more jagged line of, of stagnation and working within a system and then some some rapid development and you can look at the major scientific revolutions whether it was the biological turn of the 19th century the copernican revolution or whatever and, and kind of see the, how the argument plays out um now this uh what we have here is a much more vitriolic aggressive hostile response to uh to scientific conventionality um but anyways that's what we're getting i think that's a window into Heinlein's view here. His, his heroes often are, in the, you know, I haven't read most of Heinlein at this point, but his heroes, in the books I've read, his heroes often are thinkers or, or scientists or, you know, who, who come up with some kind of discovery or finding and, and wrestle with it. And the world has to wrestle with that. So it is kind of, it is a very American kind of idea of, of science as a frontier that's to be uh, transcended. So anyways, that's, that's how the story begins, where Pinero is, his ideas are initially rejected. But that doesn't matter, it, really, for the story, because Pinero piques the interest of journalists and people who, you know, are kind of fascinated by this. And they, they track him down and talk to him about it. And he basically says, okay, let's, let's, I'll, I'll show you what I'm doing. We'll, we'll, you know, I'll expose that. And here's how he explains the technology. It, it's not that important. It's, it's kind of like how... And for us to living, the technology or the I, why that guy got thrust to the future isn't important. What's important is the consequences of that. And in that case, it's just a means to to bounce ideas off our interlocutor. But here it's to set up something else. But here's what we get. He says, um, suppose we take you as an example. Your name is Rogers, is it not? Very well, Rogers. You are a space-time event having duration four ways. You're quite six feet tall. You're about 20 inches wide and perhaps 10 inches thick. In time, there stretches behind you, 
more of this space-time event reaching to perhaps 1905, of which we see a cross-section here at right angles to the time axis and thick as the present. At the far end is a baby, smelling of sour milk and drooling its breakfast in a bib. At the other end lies perhaps an old man someplace in the 1980s. Imagine this space-time event, which we call Rogers, as a long pink worm continuously through the years. It stretches past us here in 1839 to a cross-section we see appear as a single discrete body. But that is an illusion. There's a physical continuity to this pink worm enduring through all the years. As a matter of fact, there's a physical continuity in, the in this concept to the entire race for these pink worms branch off from other, every other pink worm. In this fashion, the race is like a vine whose branches intertwine and send out shoots. Only by taking a cross-section of this vine would we fall into an error of believing that the shootles were discrete individuals. So that's an interesting idea in itself, is that we're all kind of connected uh, in space-time. Um, and I, there might be all sorts of consequences for how we conceive of, of, of time travel. We're going to obviously come to time travel stories in the future in the series. Um, but um, he also talks about the pink worm as kind of uh, something that can conduct electricity. And that's what he's able to do. He's able to sort of like conduct through it to get to the end point. Now, you could also go back and get to your birth date, which wouldn't be important unless you didn't know your birth date for whatever reason. Most people would be interested in their end date. Right um, now, there's all sorts of interesting philosophical consequences to this dealing with ethics, dealing with uh, like, like, yeah, like our, I think our moral decision making or even the meaning of life. If, if we know when our end is coming, does that change how we approach our projects? Does it change how we approach our whole life? Do we live a more wholesome life if we know the end is coming sooner or even if it's coming later, even if it's coming later, but we know it's coming. It's given a clear date. We're given uh, an end date. Does that make us more motivated? Does it lead to malaise? This is something Ted Chiang does in um, some of his stories in the recent collection, the second collection, the one dealing a lot with fate. Um, I think there's the, the one about free will. It's a really short story. It's only like two pages about free will. And a, a guy from the future talks about this device that knows if you're going to push the button or not. And you can never not... Like it'll, if you're gonna if you decide to push the button, the light will go off, but you can never like trick it, proving the kind of we don't have free will. It it knows our decisions before we do, um, and then the question is like, why should we have do anything then? Why should we make any decisions? And the narrator there basically says, well, you have to pretend, you have to you have to do your best because the alternative is just to sleep all day, and then you the realization that you didn't have any choice but to sleep all day is pretty devastating to to consider but that's what some people apparently responded to that little game with um so it you know there's these questions that Heinlein's not really that into here um instead what we get after he after he reveals this technology is essentially a lawsuit implemented by the by the insurance company so he's running this practice Pinero's basically running a business where he kind of tries to profit from this technology um, where people come in and figure out when they die. And there's one case here where a couple comes in and he says, oh, it's malfunctioning and come back tomorrow. And then he like is able to look out the window and see them get hit by a car when they come out. So he, he knew they were going to die immediately, but didn't want to tell them uh, at that moment. There wasn't much point in telling them that. So he, he, he kind of lied about it, but um, this is 100% guaranteed. He actually creates a system for guaranteeing it. Basically, uh, he puts, he's got like 
$10,000 in a bank somewhere. And if ever you survive the death date that you've been given, um, you'll instantly get that $10,000 and he's never had to pay it out. So it does work. The problem is the insurance companies, because, you know, obviously most people haven't done this yet, but enough people have done it that it's started to affect the profits of the insurance companies. And the insurance companies, uh, of course, people are dropping their life insurance policies. If they know they're going to die when they're 95, why buy a life insurance policy? At least not until you're 94 and a half, right? Um, and then you have other people who know they're going to die quickly, put up big life insurance policies on themselves, knowing their death is, is, is coming Im imminently. And then there's going to be the big payout. So the, they try to go to the courts and get this, uh, this shut down, put an injunction on his business because of that. Now, this is as far as he gets really into the social consequences of this technology. Uh, in a novel, he probably could have explored it a little bit more. I think there's a lot more that could be could have been explored in this concept. But nevertheless, it, the the looking at it through the windows of the insurance companies does do do the job of showing this would have profound consequences on our life and our economy and and the way we just do things. Our financial system rests heavily on insurance companies. And then it's not only that though. There's an aspect to this where he, and, and this comes up in the dialogue of the court case where Pinero is able to say, or Pinero's lawyers are able to say, well, you do the same thing, dude. The insurance companies essentially do this lifeline thing, but they do it in the aggregate, right? If I go into Pinero's office, I can find out the day I'm going to die. An insurance company obviously can't do that, but what they can do is they can look at 10,000 white men uh, of a certain class and say a certain number of you are going to die and be pretty close to accurate. I mean, they're, 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 that's why insurance companies can be profitable, right? Is that they have their actuarial tables. They realize there's this percentage chance, which for an individual doesn't work. Someone could be a smoker, overweight, and still live to an old age. Most won't though, right? Most will, you know, get some kind of disease. And in the aggregate, it's the same kind of thing that the, the criticism of the insurance companies is that they're just playing the same game. They're just doing it through statistics and through this mass big data, if you will. And, it, you know, and the individual is just doing it um, on their own. But it's the same essential game that they're playing. Now, the story doesn't really have too far to go, except that Pinero gets gets. Uh, killed off by agents of the insurance companies to shut down his business after the courts. Yeah, I think the courts say he, he can continue to do business. So he gets uh, basically assassinated by the insurance companies. And he must have known that was going to happen. So because he probably did it himself. Right. So there's no reason he wouldn't have known that. Um, now, if we go back to the court case, there's some pretty interesting dialogue here that focuses on these themes. For instance, he writes, in the first place, this person is engaged in the practice of soothsaying, an occupation prescribed both in common law and a statute. It's a common fortune teller, a vagabond charlatan who preys on the gullibility of the public. He is cleverer than the ordinary gypsy palm reader, astrologer, or table tipper, and to this extent more dangerous. He makes false claims of modern scientific methods to give a spurious dignity to the thaumaturgy. We have here in court leading representatives of the Academy of Science to give expert witness as to the absurdity of these of these claims. 
Um, and then the response is, uh, this is, no, actually it was Panero responding directly. He says, I will stipulate that I'm engaged in the business of making predictions of death, but I deny that I am practicing magic, black, white, or rainbow colored. If I make predictions by methods of scientific accuracy is illegal, then the actuaries of the amalgamated have been guilty for years in that they predict the exact percentage that will die each year in any given large group. I predict re death retail. The amalgamated predicts it wholesale. If their actions are legal, how can mine be illegal? Um, end quote. And, and that's essentially the story. There's not much more to it than this, but it's, um, it's, it's a really good uh, introduction to the public, I think, by, by Heinlein. Now, one other thing I... I actually didn't notice it when I first read it, but when I looked at the Wikipedia page, um, apparently this story has been quoted um, as a criticism of intellectual property rights, which is something I think the Heinlein estate needs to uh, maybe consider. Uh, and basically the idea here is this technologies, IP, are public interests and need to be um, opened up. So the quote is, there has grown in the minds of certain groups in this country the idea that just because a man or corporation has made a profit out of the public for a number of years, the government and the courts are charged with guaranteeing such a profit in the future, even in the face of changing circumstances and contrary to public interest. This strange doctrine is supported by neither statute nor common law. Neither corporations nor individuals have the right to come into court and ask that the clock of history be stopped or turned back. End quote. So the idea here is... Um, the insurance company played a role and they were making profit from that important social function they played, but technology has gone to such a place that the public good is harmed by the continuation of that business model. And, you know, it has to go away. Just like, you know, farriers aren't, you know, we're not keeping horses on the road because farriers' business interests are going to be harmed, right? Or... You know, someday cable companies are going to go into business, I'm sure, with with streaming and the Internet and all that. These are changes that are going to come and it's in the public interest to to see those changes take place. Right. And we're at a space now where. Excuse me. Where um, certainly current IP laws are not in the public interest. Their copyrights are too long. Um, they're too easily manipulated by by the law, too easily extended. Um, and, and as he writes here, contrary to the public good. So we got kind of three themes here, I suppose, just to sum up as I close up this, this quick little episode. One is that the, is this kind of scholasticism versus science idea that most science is still scholasticism, like, a um, what, you know, a, a deference to authority, uh, received wisdom. And sometimes that's good, right? You know, and sometimes you don't necessarily want to overturn the cart. You know, in some things you want science to progress slowly for whatever reason. But also there's just a lot of just uh, feeding into the interpretations of, of, of received wisdom and just accepting that as your base point and moving off from that. And that limits our potential. That's so the scholastic versus the scientific is part of it. Then we have the the dubious business model of the insurance companies basically f feeding off their ability to predict when people are going to die. 
And then this more subtle argument about the need for science to to serve the public good. And that sometimes means that businesses may have to go out of business. Certain businesses will have to stop operating or they can't be guaranteed a profit anymore because the the broader public good is is valuable. Now these are themes we we see suggested in for us the living in in various ways, right? Um, there he's looking at the whole economic system, which has to go for the betterment of humanity. We, you know, the title for us the living is, of course, quoting the Gettysburg Address. But the idea there is, the economic system should serve us, not serve people. You know, people who lived fifty or hundred or two hundred years ago. Right? We need to find what works for us. Um, but we're always kind of giving undue deference to authority. Um, so I guess that's what I can say about uh, Lifeline. It's, uh, it's a good story. If you haven't read it, I, I encourage you to, to check it out. Um, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said about this story, but those, those are the big ideas that I got out of it. Um, but please, if you do have anything to add, please let me know what they are. Um, in the next episode, I'll be looking at his next uh, published short story, Misfit which is about kind of space marines or space labor court like space corvée or something something like that i I didn't read it yet but um i think that's something the main idea so we'll we'll enter into space in the next uh next episode and i look forward to that so uh thanks for listening and i will see you next time